From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home sitting in for Tony today. Tony will be back with you on Monday, but it is my pleasure to be with you now as we head into the weekend. It's been an eventful week here in the nation's capital. Remind you that this show can be found at TonyPerkins.com whenever it is most convenient for you if you can't catch it live today on the show. Jonathan Isaac is a power forward for the NBA's Orlando Magic. He made news at the height of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations by standing during the national anthem when the rest of his team and most of the NBA was kneeling. He's just released a book called Why I Stand, sharing the gospel-centered reason he dared to be different. And he'll join us in a few minutes to tell us his story. Also on the show, there's a lot of concern about grooming. But is it what we're seeing in our public schools actually grooming? Or is that fear-mongering? Dr. Jennifer Bowens has both clinical and academic experience on the subject, and she will join us to share her thoughts. At the end of the program, in our Friday, in our Friday Worldview conversation, a Christian middle school in Louisville, Kentucky, is facing a backlash for basically teaching Christian things. We'll give you the details of this unusual story and what may become more common during our Worldview conversation with David Clausen today. But first, the World Health Organization will meet soon to discuss proposed changes to international health rules supported by the Biden administration. We go down on Washington Watch correspondent Marjorie Jackson for more. Marjorie. Thank you, Joseph. Next week, from May 22nd to the 28th, the decision-making body of the World Health Organization, or WHO, will convene for the 75th World Health Assembly in Geneva, Switzerland. The gathering of representatives from 194 nations will be the first to be held in person since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, some of the key topics for discussion will be strengthening the organization's preparedness for and response to health emergencies. And part of that involves the development of a global accord that has been in the works since last November. The world faces serious challenges with disrupted ecosystems, new conflicts, and the climate crisis. And this convergence demands a collective response and an accord would be a critical element of that. Now, while the WHO leadership heralds this as a necessary step for effectively handling future pandemics, many critics, including an increasing number of members of Congress, say that it cedes too much authority to the organization, which was criticized for its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll be tracking the developments of next week's assembly on Washington Watch, as will many who have concerns over the proposals being considered. Back to you, Joseph. Thank you for that, Marjorie. And as you heard, there is a lot of conversation about this proposal from the Biden administration. Joining me now to discuss it is an outspoken critic of the WHO proposal, Congressman Chris Smith. He serves on the House Foreign Affairs Committee, where he's the senior member and the ranking member of the House Global Health Subcommittee. He represents New Jersey's 4th District. Congressman Smith, welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph, thank you very much for having me on. Really appreciate it. 
Thank you. So tell us, how concerned should we be about this proposed rule change in the World Health Organization? We should be deeply concerned. You know, the 2005 international health regulations uh, had a balance where a, a, a declaration could be made, uh, but only in concurrence with the country, like the United States, uh, where the alleged health concern is manifesting. Uh, this Biden strikes all of the the nation states, and that's not just ourselves, uh, in terms of collaborating with the World Health Organizations and gives invests in the director general all of that power. And regional directors would have incredible power as well to make these calls. Secondly, when it comes to uh, the response, again, the countries are taken out of it. Uh, matter of fact, if they don't agree with what WHO is mandating that they do, they have 48 hours to to issue a response, uh, and it's not clear what the penalties will be. And this really is a template, as you kind of alluded to, to a treaty that would have even more enforcement capability uh, to tell us and other countries uh, that our sovereignty does not matter, uh, that WHO and a few bureaucrats know it all. Uh, and, you know, Tedros, who is the director general I've known him for years. He was the health minister for Ethiopia and the foreign minister. He covered up some health crises that occurred in Ethiopia. And and most brazenly of all, because he got his job because the Chinese Communist Party helped him get the job at the WHO. Uh, he's about to be reelected with no opposition uh, in his upcoming meeting for another five-year term. Again, the Chinese have led on this. Uh, but look what he did with COVID. He said... He said, I will praise the Chinese in the early days uh, for their great response. Uh, the actual quote is even worse. Uh, and he just Paul parroted what Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party wanted him to say uh, in the big cover-up. And we still don't know from the WHO uh, and from him the origins. We all believe, and I believe it strongly, it came out of a lab. Uh, but, you know, where is WHO absolutely insisting uh, that that data be provided? Uh, there has been a massive cover-up, and and that portends and the harbinger of other mischief that could really inure to against us uh, in the United States. I'm all for crises management and making sure that we we mitigate horrible diseases. I work on those things all the time, Joseph, all the time. Whether it be HIV/AIDS, malaria, uh, all these issues that that uh, that manifest in other countries, Ebola. Uh, but frankly, we should not lose our sovereignty. The balance that was found in the 2015 regulations uh, ought to be kept intact. Biden is scrapping the countries having that collaboration, and they will be told what to do, and they will not be partners anymore. Congressman Smith, the response to these proposals in the U.S. is gathering. We're going to get to those in a moment. Yes. But I, I want to try to bottom line this, if I can, with you, because the, some of the criticism that we've seen about these proposed rules is that we would be giving the World Health Organization the authority to impose lockdowns on the United States. Is that an overstatement? Well, it's unclear what the response will be from WHO, given any crisis that might be out there. Uh, but but it's unclear. You know, ambiguity is not a good thing when you're writing regulations uh, and when you're writing treaties. We need specifics. What power do they have and don't they have? And again, the current regulations that Biden will be scrapping uh, and throwing under the bus uh, give the countries the ability to be partners, uh, to collaborate with the WHO. 
In addition to this, there's also a big push to give more power to Tedros, the director general, over all of the money in WHO. Right now, he has power over the assessed contributions, which is about 20% of their budget. We provide a lot of money in what they call voluntary contributions. He wants that too. You know, an unelected bureaucrat that has a very, very um, uh, questionable record, especially given how he got his job in the first place, courtesy of Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party, and the massive cover-up that we saw uh, uh, take place, particularly in the early days and weeks of the pandemic. You know, and, and, and why isn't he also saying, uh, we need to let Taiwan in? Uh, you know, Taiwan were the ones in, in the government there that pointed out the problems in the early days of the pandemic. They're excluded. Why? Because the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing wants them excluded. Uh, so he will do what Xi Jinping wants him to do. And I think that's very dangerous for America. Sovereignty matters. Our health experts, we believe, local and federal, uh, of course, they're, they, they're not, you know, they, they do make mistakes at times. I'd rather have that local control rather than ceding it to the World Health Organization and an unelected bureaucrat with such a checkered record. Well, and that is the one of the principles of, of, of limited government is that the decision can be made most closely to the people affected by the decision. And, and this step would obviously go in the opposite direction. If anything, in response to what happened with COVID, there seems to be a desire to have those decisions not made even by the governor or by the White House, but locally so they can take into account the things that are happening in a community, in a city. Because nobody wants everybody to get sick and die, but there's this growing awareness that decisions, that the factors change from town to town, zip code to zip code. And the idea that it would go even more more global rather than more local is concerning. But there is pushback. Tedros got it wrong. He got it horribly wrong. And many people died because he got it wrong. He took the Chinese Communist Party's mantra that uh, you don't have human-to-human transmission. Uh, That was totally untrue. And that went on for weeks. Uh, He made serious mistakes. Now, I would rather that we have that local control, like you said, uh, and, and, and partner with them uh, if that need be, but don't give up our sovereignty, particularly when the health and well-being of Americans are at right. risk. And uh, so, you know, the malign influence of the Chinese Communist Party continues for the next five years when he is reelected. As the conversations in Geneva are being prepared for next week, some breaking news this afternoon. Senators Cotton and Dane have written a letter to the White House urging them to withdraw entirely from the World Health Organization. Clearly, some battle lines, politically speaking, are being drawn. How do you see this playing out? Well, I think for once it's getting some scrutiny. Uh, You know, the the Biden administration does a lot of things in secret with executive orders that few people see until they're actually announced. Um, This, you know, the European um, uh, Council has just a few weeks ago called for a new treaty, a binding treaty. Uh, And, and of course, the WHO is working on a draft on that as well. So what happens next week could become the template for a brand-new binding treaty that grossly undermines the United States' sovereignty. Sovereignty matters. We need to be able to make our decisions about our health crises. We have great experts uh, that, that all of a sudden will be powering to whatever it is that WHO has to say. And if they hadn't gotten it so wrong on COVID and continue to obstruct uh, an honest assessment about its origins, um, you know, they might be given even more uh, of a little bit of leeway. But that wasn't the case. 
And again, Tedros, I know him. Um, you know, here's a guy, you know, WHO is branching out into a lot of other areas, Joseph, as you probably know. They have become a prime promoter of abortion on demand. Then they even, on their website even, talk about how the pandemic has become, you know, a, a conduit towards the promotion of abortion. Are you kidding me? The WHO should be standing with life. And for That's many, right. many Com- years, they were at least neutral on the issue, uh, believing that that's up to sovereign states to decide. But now they... Congressman, they, we've got about got, a minute left, but I want to get in one other question if I, if I can on this. Why would the Biden administration want to give greater authority over the United States to the World Health Organization? From their perspective, what benefit do the American people get? It's a great question. You should ask them. Everyone should ask them why ceding authority to unelected bureaucrats who got it horribly wrong on COVID-19 uh, should then become the masters of our of our planning and our responses to. I mean, nobody responds better than the United States of America to crises, including things like Ebola. I chaired a number of hearings on Ebola when that was manifesting in, in, in uh, Africa in many places over many times. Yeah, WHO was there. Uh, but the U.S. government played the key role in mitigating and, and helping uh, to to save lives. So, you know, don't just give all this authority uh, to people, again, who are not accountable. You know, I find in all things, government, bureaucrat, you've you got to have accountability. Where's the accountability when we disagree? They'll we say, agree, Congressman Smith. We do need accountability to the people. We are out of time. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being with us today. Joseph, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Coming up, an NBA superstar with the courage to stand will join us. Stay right here on Washington Watch. Join Family Research Council on an exciting two-year journey through the Bible. FRC's Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan helps you to dive deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into the cultural issues of the day. God has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. By studying the Bible, we can see God's plan unfold throughout the past and be encouraged by how the truth of Scripture is still relevant in our current day and will be into the future. The Stand on the Word reading plan engagingly and thoughtfully takes you through the daily scripture to help you stay grounded in God's truth. You can start this reading plan with Family Research Council today. When you sign up, we'll text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your family and friends. Visit frc.org Bible to begin this journey through the Bible today. Although most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, studies show that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. That is why Family Research Council's Center for Biblical Worldview was created. The center serves to help Christians understand the importance of Scripture, why it must be authoritative, and how it can equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC Center for Biblical Worldview provide resources to help prepare believers to give a scriptural answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access these free resources at frc.org worldview. See the center's latest blogs, op-eds, and publications by signing up for the newsletter at frc.org worldview email. 
Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Again, search Stand Firm and download the app today. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph back home, sitting in for Tony today. Thrilled that you are with us. In an era where it is costly to be different, NBA power forward Jonathan Isaac stood courageously apart from the crowd. During the height of the recent Black Lives Matter protests and social unrest following the murder of George Floyd, many chose to protest whenever the national anthem was being played. So when players throughout the NBA were kneeling in protest, Jonathan Isaac was the only member of his Orlando Magic team to stand. So many people wanted him to talk about it and the faith that inspired it that he wrote a book about it that's been re released this week called Why I Stand. And he joins us now to tell us all about it. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thank you, my man. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, we're glad to have you. Uh, you did. Uh, you inspired a lot of people. I think you also raised a lot of questions. Uh, everybody in America at that moment was kind of responding to this social moment in their own way. Tell us what led you to take the position that you did. Well, just what you said, honestly, that everyone was trying to figure out what was the right way to respond for them. And so as tragic as George Floyd's passing was, and honestly, all the things that are going on in our society, even today, I tried my best to take a step back and say, what is the best way for me to respond in a way that would bring the most change? The same way that people who decided to kneel or wear that T-shirt in that moment decided for themselves what was going to be best for them. But for me, I just didn't agree. Um, and so I just looked at my life and said, you know what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the love of Jesus Christ is what has changed my life. And I know and I can't think of any greater message. I can't think of any greater antidote for the times that we see in today, the not just racism that plague our society, but all the things that plague the hearts of men that I know that the gospel can change. Um, that's what I wanted to just stand up and say. So I didn't want to go with anybody's narrative. I didn't want to go with what everybody was doing. I wanted it to be authentic to me. And so that's why I decided to, to stand up and, and share my truth and then ultimately to write the book, Why I Stand About the Entire Journey. And tell us, how did you reach the conclusion that standing was the thing that you needed to do to represent the gospel? Well, I just I, I didn't want to join into a fight. And, you know, one thing that I know is that anger only begets anger and hate only begets hate. And so stepping into that moment, I didn't want to just go along with it, with what everybody else was doing or go along with the crowd. Um, you know, I said standing for the national anthem is what we do is what we do as Americans. And so I'm going to do that. And I know that I'm going to get a ton of backlash for it. So I'm going to have the opportunity to share what I know is the truth, um, which is the gospel. Well, tell us a bit more about that backlash. Like, how did your 
first your teammates respond, you have family, you've got a whole organization around you. What kind of reaction did you get? Uh, it, it was tough. There, there was definitely a lot of backlash to start out. You know, I detailed in the book a, a conversation that I had with an, an, an only team meeting that we had after my stand. And so it got pretty heated and intense, but we were able to kind of agree to disagree and leave out by saying, look, you guys knelt for what you believe in and I stood for what I believe in. And so um, but th there was obviously more, especially with me getting injured the next game. There was a ton of backlash that came out. Um, but at the same time, there was so much more encouragement and people who said, you know what, I agree with your message. I believe in it. And you're giving me the courage to stand for myself and my beliefs. And so, um, you know, I, I was I was I was inspired myself that so many people agree with me and and, uh, you know, wanted to hear my story. And I want to hear a bit more about the what's happened since then, because there has been time that has passed. The nation has has calmed down a little bit. You've had time to reflect on that. The relationships that we have have had a chance to evolve. Certainly, there was conflict there that you've just referred to uh, when you chose to make take that stand. How has that played out in the long term? Would you say relationships have been fractured? Relationships are now stronger because of this. How do you look back on all of that? Well, I, I agree with you that everything around kind of that moment has definitely calmed down a bit. And, you know, even guys that were, you know, very adamant about, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and organization have kind of taken a step back and are able to reflect about what was exactly happening in the moment. And they were even able to see that it was so emotional. Um, it, it was such an emotional time. It was such an, uh, a high, you know, stakes time that people kind of did get swept up into the movement, Black Lives Matter, um, or the phrase Black Lives Matter and Black Lives do matter. And so my, my stance wasn't against the Black Lives Matter. It was just that I knew from my life what has supported my life and what has support, supported countless other lives as the actual answer to the problem and not, you know, kneeling or wearing a t-shirt. And so, uh, yeah, I, th I think that people have definitely been able to take a step back and kind of just breathe a little bit. Um, and kind of, you know, come to amends with what's going on. Now, Jonathan, as I watched you walk through this from a distance, there's a couple of observations that I have I'd like to hear your thoughts on because it's one thing to believe that sometimes I need to be different and just be open to that possibility. There's a bunch of people doing one thing. I might not need to do that just because they're doing it. And then it's another thing to decide, in this case, I actually have to be different. What is it that has led you to be open to the possibility that at any point in any moment in my life, I've got to do something that's very different from everyone else? Well, it's it's definitely been a journey. And what's so much of why I stand the book details is my journey from a young kid into who I am today. So I, I think a part of what has helped me to understand that I'm going to have to be different is because I truly believe that I've encountered the truth. When I was a young man, I really struggled with anxiety, fear, self-insecurity, and it's only been because of my relationship with Christ where I've been able to grow to the point where um, I'm able to stand on my own. Or, and, and, I, and when I even say stand by myself, I know that I wasn't standing alone. Um, I know that I was standing on God's word and I had my family, I had my wife, I have my pastor, my church, all those people, you know, backing me and, you know, the people who agree with me in our country backing me. And so, uh, so I've, I've grown to that place where I'm willing to say, you know what, I, I know that this may not be like, this may not be, you know, the, 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 what everybody else is thinking, but at the end of the day, I'm willing to stand up for it and, and, and share from my perspective, what I believe to be the truth. Jonathan, last question I got for you, you got about a minute left. What would you say to people who in their own life, in their own situation, are faced with pressure to conform to what people around them are doing? 
I would say it's it's necessary um, to be willing and able to stand up for what you believe in, especially as the world gets crazier and crazier and darker and darker. You are commissioned and, you know, you have to be the light in the situation. And so I would just encourage people um, to just take it from me that it's a journey. It's a process. Read the book. It's going to help equip you um, with how I got through the journey of being willing to stand or be the only one to stand. So I would just encourage everybody to support this and head to Amazon and, and get your Why I Stand book and, um, you know, read the story. And it's not just about standing in the bubble. It's about so much more. Um, it's an inspiring story about facing your fear and conquering those giants in your life and uh, doing it through developing a relationship with Christ, what I ultimately believe to be the answer for the world. Jonathan Isaac is the author. The book is Why I Stand. I do look forward to reading this, and we appreciate you not only writing it, but joining us today. Again, thank you so much for being with us. God bless you. Coming up next, a lot of conversation about grooming. Is it as serious as people say it is? We'll talk about it when we come back. Most of us have at least one friend or family member who is pro-choice or have engaged with someone who doesn't share our pro-life views. As Christians, we are called to defend the weak and to speak truth in love. When we advocate for the unborn, we must do so in a way that is both honest and loving. At Family Research Council, we recognize the inherent dignity of every human life, from conception until natural death. The value of human life is not conditional upon its usefulness to others or an arbitrary evaluation of a person's quality of life. Rather, the value of human life is unconditional because God, the author of life, has created all humans in his image. FRC's Center for Human Dignity exists to give a voice to the voiceless by helping others speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Access our free resources at frc.org life so that you can address abortion, human trafficking, pornography, and more. Attention university students. Do you feel called to promote faith, family, and freedom in public policy and the culture? Are you hoping to grow in Christian leadership? Then join Family Research Council for an unforgettable internship. FRC's 12 to 15 week internship program is designed to educate university students who are passionate about public service and who believe that a biblical worldview is necessary for government to serve the people and for culture to thrive. As an intern, you work alongside FRC's experts who will invest in your personal and professional development as you prepare to make a kingdom impact in the world. This paid internship offers free housing in D.C., allowing you to experience community with other faithful conservatives in the nation's capital. For more information and to apply, visit frc.org slash internships. That's frc.org slash internships. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. It seems like every day we see a new story about age-inappropriate material in school classrooms or libraries. Local libraries have pedophilic books like Lawn Boy on the children's bookshelves. The more these stories come to light, the more parents have begun to call this behavior for what it is, grooming. But many on the left object, claiming that applying the term grooming to what they see as sex education is simply fear-mongering. But which is it? Dr. Jennifer Bowens joins me now to discuss the topic. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be with you again. 
Well, you have experience working with children, working with trauma victims. This is an area that you have not only practiced in, but studied academically. How do you encourage people to see first, actually first define the term grooming for me from your perspective. What is that? And does the situation that we're seeing now apply? It absolutely applies. Um, grooming has historically been used uh, for more interpersonal relationships. Um, so the way that it's being used now is a little bit different, but it doesn't mean that it uh, nullifies the use of it. Um, certainly, it's been applied to um, these intimate relationships where there's an adult trying to uh, garner the trust of a child, whether that be through sharing their own secrets with that child, um, giving them gifts, so forth, uh, making them feel special, uh, all in with an end to sexualize them. And what we're seeing now, and, and again, this has been applied to the individual relational aspect of life, um, but we're seeing at a real macro level this type of behavior. And no, of course, you know, we're not having sex in the classroom, think hopefully not yet. Um, but we are seeing the same kind of principle applied at the macro level where kids are being primed yeah. for sexual encounters. Jennifer, and, and talk to us about how that happens. When you say kids are being primed for sexual encounters, how does the content that we are seeing in classrooms and sex ed curriculum that parents are becoming outraged by, how does that prepare students, prepare children for sexual encounters? Well, when you have four-year-olds and five-year-olds who are taught uh, graphic cartoon-like pictures, uh, what different sexual encounters look like, um, what they feel like, um, there's really no defense for introducing that kind of material to a child. They're not developmentally prepared for that kind of material or to process that material. And I know, um, just anecdotally, I have friends who have small children, and they're already hearing um, the effects of, of how these materials have impacted their kids through other children. Um, children as young as five and six years old talking about whether or not they're a boy or a girl and not knowing that. And that's a direct result of our culture injecting this kind of indoctrination, um, a.k.a. grooming, into, into our children, into our school systems. Now, Jennifer, one of the re responses we hear to that kind of an argument is, that the teachers, the people in the classroom, they need the freedom to live authentically. And, and what they hear when you say, don't groom my children, is you're supposed to not live your truth. You're, you're supposed to deny who you really are and not let children see who you actually are. What's your response to that? I, I think it's a rather narcissistic response because it makes um, the issue about the adult. And adults are supposed to be the protectors of children. And we, we need to do a better job of protecting the minds and the hearts of our kids. Um, this isn't about you living your life. You can do that um, without exposing children to graphic sexual material. Um, you can still be your authentic self without sharing um, your sex life into the, to the classroom uh, or other social media outlets, whatever the venue may be, whether it's Disney or Netflix. Um, it's inappropriate.
in the educational space, a lot of this is coming through sex education curriculum. What is the difference? Where is the line between actually educating children for the world that is real and that is out there and that eventually they have to be prepared for and destroying a child's innocence? Yeah. Well, part of grooming is the secretive nature. And what we're seeing um, in a lot of our schools are closets for kids who want to trans, um, identify as transgender so that their parents don't know that they're going to school and changing their clothes. This is this is um, a characteristic of grooming. You keep things secret. So we need to have our parents informed about what their kids are learning about. Um, and when, once we take away the consent, that is a macro attribute of grooming. And you make a really good point there because we hear a lot of these examples now where there's an it's not a conspiracy in the sense that it's not real. It's a conspiracy in the sense that it's a plan that people are working together to hide really important information about what's going on in a child's life from the parents of those children. It's like that. Shh, don't tell anybody. It's our little secret. And that is it's a stereotypically uh stereotypical characteristic of grooming, but we are seeing that happening in schools with teachers, uh, with counselors, uh, and of course, peers as well, all conspiring together to make sure mom and dad are not aware of what's going on in their kid's life. So you're right, it is uh, a serious concern, and it seems that the the term grooming does apply. Dr. Bowens, thank you so much for your diligent work on this and for your time today. Thanks, Joseph. Stay with us, friends, when we come back. Louisville, Kentucky, a Christian school there, has been targeted by the local press because of an assignment they've given to their students, teaching them how to talk to their friends about what it means to be gay. We'll tell you more about this whole story when we come back right after the break here on Washington Watch. Religious liberty is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's own choosing and to live in accordance with those beliefs. It is an inherent human right. Therefore, Family Research Council's Center for Religious Liberty strives to advance religious liberty for all people of all faiths. Advocates for strong religious liberty protections are often labeled bigots. But for those familiar with the history of religious liberty in the United States, until recently, it was embraced by a majority of Americans. In fact, religious liberty has historically had bipartisan support. Today, efforts to restrict this freedom have become increasingly common. Therefore, Christians need to articulate with greater clarity why we support religious liberty and why all people are served when religious liberty thrives. Access the Center for Religious Liberty's free resources to learn more at frc.org slash religious liberty. In today's culture, there are few examples of godly manhood. Men, husbands, and fathers need a model of leadership, strength, courage, and sacrificial love that they can look to. But where can they find it? Try our Stand Courageous Men's Ministry. We seek to help men develop a strong, biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. We invite you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. 
These conferences are led by men who struggle with the same issues you do and will invest in unpacking our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can have the generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. At Family Research Council, we want to be able to keep you informed on our latest resources and events. Due to the growing threat of tech censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've created a tech subscription platform so that we can stay connected. So if we get canceled, you can continue to receive updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? Just text STAND to 67742 to sign up for our text alerts, and you will get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and you will get special alerts on the biggest stories of the day. You can stay informed with just a simple text. We want you to be able to stay connected with like-minded community and to always have access to our content. Stay connected and informed. Just text STAND to 67742. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Quick reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com where you can find this and every episode of Washington Watch when it is most convenient for you. Students at the Christian Academy of Louisville, a middle school in Kentucky, were recently assigned a writing project to persuade a hypothetical friend struggling with same-sex attraction to seek a biblical perspective on the issue. This writing assignment was leaked to some members of the press and has now drawn criticism on social media, from traditional media, and from some school alumni as well. Did the school do something wrong? What does this episode teach us about what is coming for the church in the days to come? And should Christian kids be prepared to talk to their friends about homosexuality? Joining me to discuss all of it in our worldview segment is David Clausen, who is the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview. David, good to see you today. Great to see you as well, Joseph. Happy Friday. Happy Friday to you. I think for this conversation, <laughs> it's important to have some details about what exactly this assignment yeah. is. And subsequent to the backlash, which we're going to discuss the Christian Academy of Louisville school system superintendent, his name is Darren Long. Yeah, his quote about this was he said it was, quote, how the, how the assignment, how he described it. It's, quote, how a person could discuss homosexuality with a friend from a biblical perspective with compassion and love, end quote. So that's his description of it. Reading from the assignment itself, it says that you should assume that you have known this friend since kindergarten and that you go to the same church, and that you've been pretty good friends over the years until now. It also says that the aim of your letter should be to lovingly and compassionately speak truth to the person you're talking to in a way that does not approve of any sin. And here's another point of emphasis in the assignment. It says, in all caps, it says, try to persuade them of the goodness of God's design for them. That's part of the assignment. Is there anything wrong with this that you see? Not at all, Joseph. And I think it's so interesting. You know, this has become a national news story. We're talking about it right now on the program. 
And you would think with the attention that this story has gotten, even the language that's surrounding it, this leaked homework assignment, you know, you, the, the, normally when things are leaked, it's a Supreme Court opinion that, you know, wasn't supposed to be seen yet. You, know, you would think that this is something nefarious, some sort of bombshell, uh, something that should have all of us concerned. Uh, you look at the assignment, Joseph, and all this is is a Christian school uh, asking, this was in an elective Bible class, uh, encouraging their students uh, to think about what God's word says on the issue of homosexuality and, and same-sex attraction and to lovingly and compassionately uh, seek to talk to them about what God's good design says. Uh, you know, Joseph, newsflash for those who are really going crazy about this is this is what Christians have believed for 2,000 years. Uh, going back to the first century, uh, any denomination today uh, that still has a high regard for the Bible believes these things uh, about what uh, the Christian Academy of Louisville is saying. And so I think it's just interesting. It, it definitely tells us where our culture is, though, uh, to see how uh, the, this news story is being uh, received in the media. That's exactly right. And I think the way this is being received is actually the story that we need to be talking about in part. And I'm going to pull out some of the the uh, scare quotes that we that the local Louisville newspaper has highlighted as a way of showing how outraged people should be about this assignment. Um, and this is the local the, the courier, the local newspaper paper there says because it refers to and they say quote friends who are quote struggling with homosexuality. This is supposed to outrage us quote. That God's design for them is good and, quote, that homosexuality will not bring them satisfaction and, quote, you love them even though you don't approve of their lifestyle. So those are all part of the assignment. And those are things that the media has lifted out of the assignment, presented to the public and said, Shouldn't you, aren't you outraged by this? Isn't this horrible? Isn't it a good thing that we got a copy of this assignment so that you can know what's really going on inside this Christian institution? To me, it says as much about the ignorance of the press about what Christians believe as it does about the assignment itself, because nobody inside the church is surprised by this. Yeah, that's right, Joseph. No one's surprised. And I think, you know, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky for five years, so the Courier-Journal uh, that's reporting that kind of revealed this this story uh, is very liberal. Uh, everyone in Louisville, Kentucky knows uh, that the, the slant uh, that the Courier Journal takes is liberal. So in one sense, I'm not surprised that you know the the, the reporter uh, who is presenting the story is is acting like this is some bombshell revelation uh, that he's reporting on something uh, that you know no one knew that was happening, some you know secret nefarious indoctrinization. And again, it just should, you know, our colleague George Barna, we, we talk about, about some of his surveys. He's shown uh, that only 6% of Americans have a biblical worldview. Um, and even inside the church, uh, although 81% think they have a biblical worldview, it's only 21%. Yeah. And so increasingly, as less and less Americans uh, think about life uh, uh, through the lens of the Bible or even informed by historic Christianity, ideas uh, like what the Bible teaches, just basic Christian sexual ethics, is increasingly not just going to be seen as outdated or even bigoted. It's going to be seen as subversive and dangerous. And I think we need to uh, realize 
that's where the culture is increasingly going. And, and as believers, we need to really know what our Bible says and be able to articulate it in a winsome manner. Uh, truth and love, Ephesians 4. And I, in my view, Joseph, that's exactly how this particular assignment was presented. Uh, Ephesians 4, truth and love. I think you're right about that, because as we read this assignment and what it's trying to do, um, for those who are interested in Christian orthodoxy, there's just nothing about this that is surprising or outrageous. And it makes me wonder if uh, some of these same journalists might not embed themselves even deeper in the church to do some long-form reporting and uh, and discover what it is that Christianity teaches, because it's, it's clear that there's a real disconnect for them. Um, but let's talk about the fact that this story happened. This is one particular middle school in Louisville, Kentucky, but the rest of the church is watching this. The rest of the church is living in a similar climate because, again, uh, Kentucky is Bible Belt, right? Kentucky is not San Francisco. Kentucky is not Boston. This is one of the places where Christian sensibilities are supposed to be more safe than other parts of the country. But how should churches or schools who are observing this and seeing that this is essentially a, uh, a hit, a smear campaign by the local media, an attempt to embarrass them for believing orthodox Christian things, to frame it in the worst light possible in an attempt to misrepresent what they're about and what they think and what their intentions are. What should that teach the rest of the church about how to respond? Is this inevitable for all of us? Yeah, I think it is, Joseph. Let me give you two things that I think every pastor, every Christian administrator needs to walk away from the story. Number one, uh, we need to double down on making sure we're teaching what God's word says on these issues. Uh, We can no longer take for granted that even people in our churches actually would understand what we would call a biblical sexual ethic. Uh, Pastors need to be preaching expositionally. Uh, We need to be preaching about what God's word says on the issue of marriage, on homosexuality. We need, we, our people need sermons on Romans 1, on 1 Corinthians, or uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, uh, in 1 Timothy, um, in in Genesis and Leviticus. Our our people need to know what God's word says. We, We can't assume uh, that people actually at, at all know what the Bible teaches. So we need to be sure that make sure that we are discipling and catechizing our people because there's a real lack of knowledge on even what basic Christianity 101 would tell us. But number two, Joseph, we we need courage. Uh, you know, our our, our uh, colleague Andrew Brunson, uh, who was a, a pastor imprisoned in Turkey for over a year, uh, he came back out of that situation. And one of the things that's driving his ministry today is going to pastors and saying, you know, the, the, the threat is coming. It's coming to a church near you. We need to be bold. We need to be courageous. And so I think, you know, Joseph, the the, the winds in our face on every cultural issue, whether it's the sexuality issues, whether it's the life issues, religious freedom issues related to family. I think this needs to be a wake-up call uh, that not only do our people need to know what to think, uh, they need to be uh, realized they don't stand alone, uh, that they're standing with God, on God's Word, they're standing uh, with folks in their church, they're standing in a great long line of uh, people throughout Christian history that have believed these things, uh, but we need to be imparting courage in our people because the winds that are in our face are only going to get stronger. I think that's a really good point. The wind is in our face, but we're in very good company by having the wind in our face. And one thing that I think we need to take from this is just an awareness of this is the world that we live in. If this hasn't happened to us yet, it's going to, and we need to be preparing for that moment. And David, let's talk about that for a moment, how we should prepare for a situation like this. 
if a friend, if the local media, if somebody comes to us and, and says, did you say all these horrible things? And really, there's this implicit ex- expectation that you're going to apologize for this. What's the Christian response? I referenced the verse earlier, Ephesians 4.15, where Paul is writing to the Ephesians. It's kind of the applied ethics section of that letter. And he says we're to speak the truth in love. And I know, Joseph, you and I have had conversations. As Christians, we should never be apologizing uh, for what the Bible teaches on on whatever the issue is. You know, I think the most offensive thing in the Bible actually isn't uh, sexual ethics or what it says about the person of the unborn. It's the exclusivity of the gospel, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We, we can never apologize for anything the Bible teaches, uh, but we, we do need to be loving. We need to be kind. Uh, I think there's a lot of angry Christians out there that kind of dis, do a disservice to all of us. Uh, we don't need to be angry. We don't need to be upset. Um, we, we can just speak the truth uh, and with a smile on our face. And so, But what, to directly answer your question, Joseph, I think we need to know our Bibles. Uh, people today do not know their Bibles. And so in all the contested issues, I would encourage uh, all Christians, know a couple of verses that you can just quote on what the Bible says on issues related to marriage and sexuality. Be able to quote Psalm 139 or Luke 1 when the issue of life is brought up. Just know your Bible, and a good place to start um, is the Biblical Worldview series that FRC's published. Uh, those are on our website, frc.org worldview. The whole purpose of those booklets is just to help people know what God's Word teaches. Because at the end of the day, doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what someone else thinks. What does God's word teach on these issues? And for some of these issues, Joseph, there's a clear thus saith the Lord. And we need to know what that is. Yeah. So much of this is attitude. And David, mm-hmm. communication people say that uh, 90% of communication is nonverbal. Yeah. And the, the posture that we have about what the gospel says means so much. And it communicates yeah. so much when somebody like this, who's clearly trying to misrepresent you, is not on the right side, comes to you and says, did you say these terrible things, expecting you to be ashamed and embarrassed of it, if you show shame and embarrassment and kind of like timidly try to say, well, yeah, but uh, it's not really that bad, that kind of attitude engenders no confidence. The church needs to have the ability to smile and say, you don't understand this at all. Uh, That is not what the gospel is. Uh, When we show no fear, then it creates confidence, not only in the people who are also on our team, but it creates curiosity. And frankly, I think one of the best things evangelistically, if I may use that word, the LGBTQ plus whatever community has done is be confident in what they believe. Their ideas are exceptionally weak, but the appearance of confidence has convinced a lot of people because they're unembarrassed of what they believe. And sadly, the church is more embarrassed of the truth than other people Mm. are of the lies. And that's one of the things that we have to be prepared for is anticipating the moment. And frankly, and I'll say, based on what I've seen from this particular episode, these schools in Louisville have done a tremendous job of that. It's really important that we not apologize for the gospel. When people are trying to misrepresent things, we are not embarrassed of what the gospel is, what it says to us, what it calls us to. We're, We're happy about it. We're joyful in it. We're confident in it. And we're thrilled for the opportunity to tell you about it, even if you're going to lie about it and misrepresent it. And I think that's the posture that we need to be prepared to take in the face of what we know is opposition. And if we're not preparing, uh, you know, it's it, uh, failing to prepare is preparing to fail, right? This is something it's going to rain. So you better get an umbrella and you better have some clothes to put on on a rainy day because in America in the 21st century, this is the world 
we live in. Now, David, one other question I want to get to with you is just this assignment itself. These are middle school kids who are being asked to write a letter about these really sensitive issues to a hypothetical friend up here. Is this something that pastors, parents, teachers should be equipping children of that age to do? I think so, Joseph. Now, I do think that we need to realize, you know, parents ought to be the primary disciple makers in their home. That's clear, Deuteronomy 6. And so for, you know, middle school is getting pretty young. I I do think uh, that hopefully a Christian school would be in consultation with the parents about what the material is going to be. Uh, But increasingly, Joseph, I think that uh, if the church and Christian schools, but mainly Christian parents, are not speaking into these very, uh, you know, controversial issues, uh, the media is going to talk about it, Hollywood is going to talk about it, uh, social media is going to talk about it. And so if our, if our, the rising generation is not going to hear it from their parents, uh, from their church, their youth group, their Christian school, they're not going to hear it. And so I do think we need to be doing discipleship and catechizing the next generation, which Barna studies have shown don't have a biblical worldview. It's less than 2%. I think we do need to make sure that we're prioritizing that uh, to give this next generation uh, a chance. And David, real quickly here before we close, where can people go to get some of our resources if a parent, a grandparent, a teacher here is inspired to get some of the right materials to put it into the hand of their hands of their kids to equip them? Where should they go? Yeah, frc.org slash worldview has all of the resources that our Worldview Center's produced in the last uh, 11 months. frc.org slash worldview. David Clausen, thank you so much for your time as always. Thank you, Joseph. And remember, friend, the take home here, if they're not hearing it from you, if their worldview, if their loves, if their values are not being shaped by you, they're being shaped by someone else, you better get involved. Arm yourself with the truth so that you can arm others with it as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great weekend. Look forward to seeing you Monday here on Washington Watch. Until then, fear God and nothing else. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234. 